All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stable coins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. It's a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only tested crypto tax software. Luca's listened to your feedback. Now you can calculate capital gains and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side, all for free. You only pay if you want to access their detailed tax reports. Luca supports unlimited transaction uploads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refund. Luca Tax wants to help Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get $5 off the normal price at $39.95 when downloading today. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. Have you seen what the Crypto.com team's been up to lately? Talking about the MCO Visa card. It's a beautiful metal card you can top up with crypto and spend anywhere Visa's accepted. You get up to 5% back on all your spending, plus 100% rebates on Spotify, Netflix, and now Amazon Prime Travel. How about unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates? So many perks in just one card. You can download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours today. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with for exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode, live episode in the flesh of Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiot. I have a very special guest today that I try to emulate with these interviews. I'm talking about Joe Weisenthal, who's an editor at Bloomberg and anchor on Bloomberg TV. Uh, I've had the privilege of going on and prognosticating a couple times uh, on, on Joe's program, What Did You Miss? Um, and we're going to talk about uh, quite a number of topics today, mostly around how mainstream media narratives are formed, um, about Joe's personal trip down the rabbit hole. I happen to find him maybe the most informed, uh, if occasionally trollish, uh, M- MSM personality when it comes to Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, he's spoken at the Coin Center's annual uh, gala, uh, which is obviously an insider's focused event. And, uh, and generally, I'd say, has a finger on the, on the rational pulse of the industry, even if he's not a religious zealot, uh, like we, we ultimately want to convert him to be. Um, Joe, yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, and, and why don't we start just by uh, getting a little bit of your background, at least the cliff notes, and sure. with an emphasis on the origin story for how you first started to go down the Bitcoin crypto rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the short version is that I basically started covering financial markets as a journalist in about uh, late uh, late 2008, which was a really good time. I had been doing some other reporting and other media stuff, and I'd always been interested in markets prior to then. But in terms of like seriously covering markets uh, as a full-time uh, thing, it was like really late 2008, October 2008 specifically. And of course, that was just like the best time ever mm-hmm. to start because there was just so much 
uh, going on. So I got my career started right at the cusp of the great financial crisis, and that really dominated uh, what I covered for several years and, of course, has informed everything since then. And you're not being facetious because from a media perspective, yeah. it, it was. Oh, no, I wasn't. It was, yeah, I would not be facetious at all. Yeah. It was just there was so many interesting, mm-hmm. important things to cover, and it was the center, the center focus of all news. Mm-hmm. So I really mean that. It was a very fortunate time to start that because it was huge and it was the center of everything. Yep. And, you know, it's funny, like people always like ask me, uh, they say like, what do you cover? I say markets. And they say, well, what does that mean? And I say, well, a market is just anything that goes up or down on a chart. Like if it goes mm-hmm. up or down on a chart, I probably am interested in it. And, you know, nothing has moved up or down on a chart over the last 10 years the way Bitcoin has, or the way uh, <laughs> cryptocurrencies have. Like you can't, like if you're, if you're not interested in it on some level, as a person who's interested in markets and what forms of price and where prices come from, like mm-hmm. there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I get it. Like it's, even if you just want to say like, I'm interested in this purely because it's the ultimate emblem of uh, bu- irrational bubbles, even if that's like your view, like you know, that's interesting. Uh, I don't think it's entirely irrational, just like 99% irrational. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even that is like a you know, key thing. So I like, you know, I first, it first came on my radar probably around when other people did, like 2011 or something like that. You start reading stories about this weird thing that mm-hmm. um, was up like, you know, 10,000% and why. And, you know, like I, I think I had the same, and I definitely had the same initial impulse as everyone is like, okay, this is weird. This is uh, st- silly and this is a bubble. And at that mm-hmm. point, it was probably like $5 or something like that. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. that's crazy. Yep. It went from less than a penny to $5. That's obviously insane. And so that's kind of like the first stage of um, you know interest that a lot of people have, and then maybe they move on. And then the second phase of interest is probably not quite dismissing it, but trying to learn a little bit more mm-hmm. and then dismissing it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so you're like, well, okay, this isn't going to work. This is slower than traditional payments. Okay. So it's not going to work for that. Or, yep. uh, there has all kinds of technical reasons why it can't be a serious currency. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like dismiss that. So, and then I think like, you know, eventually it like sticks around long enough and, and I think this is a really important uh, lesson for all journalists and, again, anyone who's interested in markets, which is that things may be irrational and they may be bubble and they may mm-hmm. be overvalued, but you should at least be open to the possibility that they're not. And you should at least make an effort to understand why people who are buying at X price, what they're thinking is. Maybe it's completely insane. It's like maybe it's like uh, Beanie Babies in the 90s in which you know it's just... There's really like the justifications are completely absurd. Yep. But I do think everyone, or even if it's just stocks, it's like, oh, why are stocks up so much over the last 10 years? And so many people are very quick to call that a bubble. Mm-hmm. But I think everyone whose impulse is initially to say that at least owes it to themselves sort of intellectually to like do the work to figure out at least what the other people on the other side of the trade are like genuinely thinking. I always think that doing the work is a prereq to getting that phase out of the way. Right. So it's almost like you need to do at least the intellectual work, if not invest, to actually see the cycle play out. You need to have one dismissive cycle. Right. Right. And then if you have a couple of those cycles where you're paying attention, at some point 
you're just looking at it and you're saying, why hasn't this thing died yet? Yeah, and it's right? weird. I agree. And it's kind of weird how many people are still just like absolutely convinced that like Bitcoin is going to die. And I get it's possible. Mm -hmm. But at some point, it's like, okay, it runs up to like 200 and then down. And then it runs up to 1,000 and down. And then it runs up to whatever. And then it runs up to 19,000 and then down. But it hasn't died. And at some point... It's surprising that anyone does not feel a little bit compelled to dig deeper. Mm -hmm. And still, how many people are just convinced that, well, yeah, but it's still just a matter of time. And, you know, Bitcoin has obviously benefited from yeah. all these different macro trends, it, right. you know, like the prophetic Genesis blog post, right. Chancellor on the brink of the bank bailouts. Yeah. Um, and, and all of those trends continue to move in the direction that ostensibly should be good for Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk about some of your coverage. Sure. Uh, and evolving coverage personally of, yeah. of, of the asset, because um, you're covering markets in general. You've got a, a pretty broad network within the crypto space right now. One of the other non-crypto elements that is, I would argue, one of the primary drivers at a macro level for, for at least Bitcoin for yeah. the foreseeable future is this concept of MMT. Yeah. So let, let's talk about modern monetary theory uh, and the resurgence it's having, having in, in kind of mainstream circles sure. when it used to be this very niche idea. And, and, and you've written about it quite a bit. Yeah. Well, let's get to the question of whether it actually makes sense as a driver for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, and first, first, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I first started becoming aware of modern monetary theory um, very soon after the crisis, 2010, 2011, probably 2010. And you know, the US like deficits were absolutely skyrocketing then, mm -hmm. right? Like trillion dollar deficits, revenues from taxes were collapsing because the economy was collapsing mm -hmm. and uh, you know, spending increased due to various stimulus and stuff like that. And of course we had QE and all this like Fed stuff. And I started feeling kind of dissatisfied with the mainstream explanations for what was happening in financial markets, particularly on the interest rate side. Because mm -hmm. the my assumption, like many other people had been like, well, look, if the economy is collapsing and the deficit is soaring and tax revenues are tumbling, interest rates should go higher. Or there should be like some sort of, you know, all this debt is being sold into the market. And instead, the exact opposite uh, seemed to be happening. Now, there are a lot of, um, you know, you don't need to go to heterodox or unorthodox schools of thought to explain that. You know, sort of like mainstream eco, more or less, can explain that, okay, well, you know, in a depression, there's a flight to safe assets. People want to buy something where they feel... Um, uh, uh, you know, that the the borrower is going to be good for it, and governments uh, pretty tend to mm -hmm. be pretty good for it, at least if they control the printing press. Nonetheless, I did start to feel the sort of dissatisfaction with the sort of like mainstream mainstream media macro discussion of deficits and debt. Like it just did not feel like it was aligning mm -hmm. um, with what I was seeing, and I like started getting frustrated by that and. Uh, Modern monetary theory, which I really started taking off and, you know, get to Bitcoin. I do think that there is like sort of like a similar origin story of the trajectory. Mm -hmm. This sort of seeking of uh, a post-crisis, like new ideas and uh, one in, in a crisis and when uh, elites 
and mainstream institutions lose credibility, people look for new ideas. There's become suddenly kind of a clearing in the woods and people can go in new directions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what uh, I got interested in this because it felt like more than the people I was listening to among mainstream economists, the news I was watching was offering a more compelling explanation. And the the idea essentially, and I, I don't even think it's really that controversial, is that um, when a, to some extent, when a, go- when a government issues uh, debt and pays for things in a currency which it creates, it doesn't have credit risk. Mm-hmm. So credit risk is I lend money to you and I'm going to base the interest rate on, you know, what your income is, what your assets are and what I think about uh, your prospects to pay. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, you know, I also want to, if inflation is high, then I'll have that'll increase the interest rate. With the government, there's really no reason to have a credit risk element of it, specific uh, for the uh, U.S. government or countries like U.K. and Japan. The main thing I want to be concerned about is inflation risk, mm-hmm. but the credit risk uh, is gone. So then, you know, I think that thinking about it that way, that a, a government bond in a sort of developed country that issues its own currency should only really have more or less inflation risk and not credit risk mm-hmm. was like one of the first like sort of key insights that they uh, that I sort of the MMT people most uh, clearly articulated. But then I think, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, don't need to talk too much further along, but there are other ideas within that sort of sphere that I think have proven to be extremely useful. So <clears throat> MMTers tend to really think that um, fiscal policy, government spending is a much more more robust way to approach a downturn and to generate inflation if you wanted to than relying on central bank easing and mm-hmm. rate cuts. That I think is proven pretty uh, clearly. We've had extremely mediocre recovery over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Everyone in basically any school of thought is disappointed with the pace of recovery. We've leaned almost entirely on central banks to do the job by cutting rates. QE, negative rates, all kinds of experiments in Japan yep. where like they buy ETFs. It doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, That's like the crazy thing. Like people, people put up these charts of like government balance sheets surging and oh, the Fed now owns $4 trillion of whatever, and the Bank of Japan owns this. It doesn't do anything. Like, mm-hmm. that's like the crazy part is that for as, for as eye-opening as all these uh, things have been, the effect is very little. C- currencies have not gotten wildly debased. Inflation hasn't taken off. And so, again, I think yes. that yet. Mm-hmm. Right. There's always yet. But I think that, by and large, the sort of, like, failure of what seemed like Kind of would be obvious. You're like, well, mm-hmm. government's creating $4 trillion worth of reserves. That's got to do something. That's the kind of phenomenon that leads to, um, you know, that I think has opened the door to other other ways of thinking about how the economy works. Have you tracked these more or less along the same time period then? Because yeah. MMT started to pick up steam in 2010, 2011. Yeah, yeah, so it's really. Bitcoin, you know, they've kind of, it's almost like they've both gone in the same cycles. Yeah, they really have. And you know another, there's something that I only realized a few, literally just thinking about this question, because I've seen like people like on Twitter that like posit that there is this sort of like inherent tension between MMT and Bitcoin. I don't really, I don't really buy it at all, because you could certainly believe that 
uh, modern monetary theory offers a better framework for understanding uh, government finances and the domestic economy mm-hmm. uh, than mainstream models or any other uh, unorthodox model. And you could simultaneously believe that there is a lot of appetite for a decentralized currency that's censorship-free, seizure-free, and mm-hmm. so on. So I don't really see the tension that other people claim there is. But I will say one thing that I really think is similar about these two things, and you know, one is a form of money and one is a school of thought. So uh, they're hard to even compare because they're so different. But one thing that I think is actually similar and I think is interesting that I haven't seen anyone else talk about is that both are fueled by, I would say, two groups of people. One is the sort of like uh, technical uh, academic side Mm -hmm. and the other is sort of evangelists. So like, you know, you look at Bitcoin and there are obviously people who like do extremely technical work. They're like working on the protocol. They're working Mm -hmm. on things like lightning. They're working on wallets and so forth. And they're, you know, it's hard computer science. It's interesting computer science. And then you have the sort of evangelists who are on Twitter who like say the same thing over and over again and and show it to their friends and so forth. That's fine. But it's like it's a both sides are kind of necessary. Right. Like they they the. The shills wouldn't have anything to show. And I say that as a term of endearment, but whatever. <laughs> the the believers mm-hmm. wouldn't have anything to promote if it weren't for the people doing the hard work. And all that hard work on the sort of computer science side wouldn't really go anywhere if it didn't have the people like sort of spreading the gospel. And I think yeah, like the, that's, the U.S. dollar has the U.S. military. Uh, right. Bitcoin yeah. as people that are mean to you on the Internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think if you look at uh, modern monetary theory, there's actually and this is one thing that I think separates it from other schools of thought, which is that you have people in, uh, you know, academic departments around the world, like doing like serious work on uh, all this stuff. And then there is also this sort of like activist wing mm-hmm. of the MMTers and people who like are not academic economists, but who like really want to inject this message into the debate. And the message they want to inject is that the way we've been thinking about government finances is completely wrong. The language that we use to describe government finances has artificially created, um, has led us to bad decisions mm-hmm. that... Um, that we have didn't need to make trade-offs that we didn't need to make premature austerity that didn't need to happen and so forth and that's a like that's really been important because i think that the mmt project is not satisfied with just writing obscure articles in academic journals that nobody wants to read it wants Mm -hmm. to like change the debate and you don't see that with other schools of thought like so like you know neoclassical economics or new keynesian economics which is kind of like what most central bankers and stuff are, Mm -hmm. there is not some like ground game of like true believers in like the sort of view of economics that someone like Ben Bernanke had, Mm -hmm. which is, um, who is like, you know, pumping like pro Bernanke, pro QE memes Mm -hmm. on Twitter. There are actually a few now because people think they're getting so weird. But by and large, (laughs) that's sort of, um, that's sort of uh, bifurcation between the academic work and the ideological work is uh, sort of distinct with MMT and uh, kind of also paralleled in where we've seen Bitcoin come from, I would say. So there, there is this sort of weird parallel about how these two things post-crisis in the space where people were seeking something new, questioning what they had been told. Mm-hmm. Both of them have sort of emerged as these, uh, you know, major phenomena. 
Do you cover anything else personally? Right? So yeah. it, it seems that Bitcoin, maybe because it's followed this uh, parallel path to MMT and kind of yeah. macro narratives, because it's the biggest, yeah. you know, because you can very easily label it like digital gold right, or, right. you know, whatever, peer-to-peer currency. Um, it's relatively simple and it fits into yeah. broader markets narratives that yeah. you're going to cover on a day-to-day basis, which is important because right. the rest of the industry is so niche, right? Right. Ethereum is a $15 billion market cap company. Yeah. That's, that's like a, a small to mid-cap stock yeah, yeah. that's moving on a day-to-day basis. Um, yet you have to balance because you have the experience with Bitcoin where yeah. you know that this could explode. Right. How, how, do, how do you spend your time studying the, everything else? Um, I and mean, and yeah. can you afford to just kind of wait and get knowledgeable like once there is a spike? It's a mix. I mean, because like obviously crypto overall is still mm-hmm. like a relatively narrow slice of what I have the capacity to cover. It's sort of like I kind of have to wait and see, all right, is this becoming a real thing? Mm-hmm. Um, like I've spent a like I feel look, I mean, probably anyone who says like they totally get any of this stuff. Is kind of lying. I feel like I have a pretty good handle on Bitcoin's role in the ecosystem, what the project mm-hmm. is uh, there for. Fortunately, like I know people who are a lot smarter than me, and I'm like, what the heck is going on with, you know, Taproot or Schnorr? And I like <laughs> had that explained to me like ten times. I still I always forget what it is, yeah. or like you know, it's like some new like multi-sig transactions or whatever. And I like try to like do the same when I hear about like Ethereum, or I try to. I know people are getting excited about. You know, DeFi and Ethereum back uh, stable coins. And so I have people like, what's going on with this? And then, like, my ability to generate, it, to actually like dive in on things, mm-hmm. like, really starts to trail off after that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there I have, there's like enough like anonymous trolls who like DM with me that if I see some like weird like scandal breaking out in the crypto world that I don't mm-hmm. understand, that I could say like, you know, find someone real quickly to fill me in. But most of that is not even for my, reporting just for my own curiosity and i think there is um a general impression that the media will only cover crypto if there's a massive spike a massive dump or some type of scandal or or, um salacious headline yeah is that fair or does it just seem like that how how do you think about covering this asset class um because it, in, in my eyes, the positives are slow and steady. Yeah. The negatives are sharp, right? Yeah. It's really, compli- it's really complicated for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is that and I, there are so many what I would call either like outright scammers or um, polite scammers or de facto mm-hmm. scammers in the space. So like obviously there's tons of like Ponzi schemes and uh, exit scams and stuff where it's like pure theft, right? So Mm -hmm. we know all that. But then there is also a lot of like de facto scams by which I mean people pumping, promoting some aspect of cryptocurrency Mm -hmm. because it sounds cool and the idea is really bad, but they want it to sound cool. You know, it's... Yeah. And the problem is from the media perspective is that there aren't that many people who just like have the intimate familiarity. There are mm-hmm. all kinds of weird things. Like there aren't enough, there are a lot of people in the media who are still because it's so new and different, don't have the familiarity to like sniff out like 
what's real, what is actually substantial, what's just vaporware, what's Mm -hmm. just someone just trying to sound cool. So that is like a big asymmetry. Another really big one is that because of like, maybe it's like the weird, like sort of like cult-like aspect of it. I mean, even when you introduced me, you're like, oh, you're trying to like flip one day, hope like I fully flip over. And that is like a real thing you hear. It. It's like Wall Streeters, like oh, I've gone like to crypto, whatever mm-hmm. it is. There are not that many people in the world that I've come across who are both really into covering the space and really know about it who haven't flipped. It's like, if you're like someone who's interested in it, then it's like everyone like kind of like flips over into that world. Mm -hmm. And so you like kind of have this weird, like evaporative cooling effect where the the people who are interested in it or get assigned to cover it, um, it takes them a while Mm -hmm. to uh, become familiar with it. And, you know, it doesn't like fit into neatly into any existing asset classes. Mm you know, it's like digital gold is a reasonable analogy, but obviously it's not airtight because there are all kinds of differences. And it's not really a commodity. Yeah. Uh, you know, gold can get turned into jewelry. Bitcoin doesn't get turned mm-hmm. into anything else. So it's decent, but it's not a great analogy. I don't think it like it's not just a commodity. It's kind of a c- currency, too. I happen to think that it's also kind of like uh, maybe it should be covered by real estate people, but we, it's the platypus. Yeah, uh, so it's like Spencer hard from blockchain so, capital. So there are just all kinds of like challenges, and I think they'll get better over time. And I think mm-hmm. like the mainstream media's coverage of it has gotten a lot uh, better over time, and it'll continue to do so. But to your initial question, you know, it's probably the fastest periods of like new learning will be during the sharp run-ups and sharp run-downs because that's what draws people in. Like I said at the beginning, markets is what goes up and down. Markets is a line that goes up and down, and when things aren't moving, then I think interest stagnates, and then when things move fast in one direction, suddenly people learn more. So it's just a process. So your flip price is what, like 40,000, 50,000 when you flip (laughs) over over to Coindesk is like lead anchor? (laughs) Yeah, right, something like that. That's somewhere. The, the, the bid is where still we're, we're not, out of the money still. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Let's talk about how the narrative actually gets shaped. Yeah, right? because I, you know, I've had some conversations because I've been on both sides of the table. Yeah, yeah. Right? I'm, I'm I'm an analyst independently. I don't I'm I'm not nearly as deep as I was when I was doing this just full time day to day in like 2013, 2014. 20, you know. Yeah. And the industry's just gotten so much bigger. Right. So right. It's, even for me, it's impossible to keep up. And this is our whole company. Yeah. Right. Uh, at at Masari, our, our, our whole focus. Um, I've run Coindesk as well. So I know that you can get attacked from all sides. Right. If you don't get something perfectly right and capture all the nuance. Yeah. And the argument that I've made for for most people that will complain about coverage of a specific, yeah. a specific asset, a specific project um, is basically boils down to two things. One, if I don't understand it or we don't understand it, it's your fault. Right. I'm sorry. Um, and. Two, directionally, you should be looking for insights. Yes. Not for precision, but for directionally accurate coverage. Because you are never going to, as like a third-party narrator, have like the omniscience of like a storyteller like you'd read in a novel. Like you're 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 there is no such thing as the the omniscient narrator when you're talking about journalism. But if they can get 50% or 75%. Of the way there, you, you look for signal in, the, in yeah. the general narratives and trends versus the the specific pieces. Um, is that the right way to think about, it, or, or or how do you describe 
the media narrative cycles uh, that take place, typically around booms or scandals? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, you know, one thing that I want to, I think it's important to really defend on the media side, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, it's hard to criticize journalists too much for, say, like not getting something when there are plenty of examples of believers not getting something, even with respect to crypto. And, and I think a good example, I think it was like 2013, Mark Andreessen uh, wrote an op-ed in Dealbook yeah, mm-hmm. about Bitcoin it was totally wrong. I mean, it was all about how it was going to be like this PayPal 2.0 and it was going to like be lower fees than, and this was like lower fees than Visa. Mm-hmm. And now no one, uh, at least in the BTC world, actually seriously like makes the case that the selling point of Bitcoin is that it's going to be like this low fee alternative to Visa. Mm-hmm. The people who still believe that have like gone and joined their own calls. But uh but on the BTC side, so like, how can anyone really like criticize a journalist for like, quote, not getting it when here was someone who is like literally one of the foremost public early advocates of Bitcoin. And not just that, but had been there in the early days of the internet they, when, yeah. when they made the decision. Yeah, so many reasons. And here was, and you know, it's, it's fine. Like uh, people get things wrong, but it's like you're really getting like, uh, here's someone who's like one of the preeminent advocates mm-hmm. of it, knows more about like the fundamental mechanisms of the internet, and essentially like described this whole vision that turned out to not be at all where it was going. Mm-hmm. So if you have like people who are like core movers and shakers of the space, sort of like you know, and we could go through like all kinds of prog- prognostications, uh, visions for what it was going to do, the different meme cycles of Ethereum of Bitcoin that didn't turn out to be right. So. Hard, hard to like fault journalists too much when even mm-hmm. the people on the inside often uh, don't know where it was going. But, you know, I think like there are still within, um, within the media, I think like there's still like cycles of like learning more about different aspects. I think uh, after 2017, a lot of the interest was about, uh, you know, the degree to which institutional investors, uh, once it became a thing of substantial size, how they would invest in it. Um, what are the tools set up that allow them to? What are the roadblocks to? Those are areas that I think people in the space were interested, that the media quickly identified as important questions. And again, like you said, it's like not everything is 100%, but directionally, that was an area in which a lot of the uh, coverage, more or less, I thought, tracked a lot of the interest uh, from the people in the space. Bloomberg, out of financial media, I'd argue as the best brand for that niche of, of coverage. And you kind of have to, or at least you should, because yeah. of the Bloomberg Terminal and, right. you know, as a platform that is that is the engine of the business. Yet, because this asset class is so volatile, yeah. it feels often not just you uh, as a, a, a company, but all financial media is almost always a lagging indicator, right? Sure. So, so, like, crypto will get covered in the peak of 2013, it'll get covered in the peak of 2017, and then all of a sudden it'll fall off a cliff, right? It's kind of like, it's almost like a running joke. And perhaps it's not fair because most other industries, if you see something that's growing exponentially, it's not not going through these massive peaks and valleys, at least from a market standpoint. Um, When you think about like venture funded companies, it's generally like stepwise functions up. Um, This really does feel unique. So how do you help people derive signal from all the noise, yeah. knowing that you're probably covering the news at either its best or its worst, and right. maybe over 
stating one direction or the other, uh, and, and maybe it's even priced in. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I think it's not quite as bad as you make it sound uh, with media be, being a lagging indicator. I mean, I was just thinking the other day, I think, like... Uh, we'll give a counterexample. Well, yeah. I mean, just, you know, I think... And I don't that, mean that as a, a no, no, criticism, totally. but no, no, it, I get, it seems I get, like yeah, a yeah. natural... Uh, yeah, of course. Well, people know, like look, business. you know, news has to happen first, and then mm-hmm. uh, people write about the news. But, you know, I was thinking, like, you know, I think Bloomberg has had, um, I think we've had uh, Bitcoin prices on the terminal since at least 2012. Mm-hmm. You know, someone could have said in 2012, oh, Bloomberg just added Bitcoin to the terminal. That's got to be the top, right? Like, yep. that would have been, I'm sure people probably even, like, thought that or said that mm-hmm. at the time. It's like, oh, they just dove in. And then, of course, you know, went crazy over the next five mm-hmm. years. So uh, it's not entirely lagging in that respect. Of course, uh, you know, no one in the mainstream was thinking about it in, uh, you know, day one. Mm-hmm. But there are other things. I mean, you know, 20, late 2017 was instructive because, okay, there was a lot more coverage mm-hmm. of uh, Bitcoin and media overall, and, and especially in the second half of that year. But, you know, I think there was also a lot of coverage of the fact that there were a bunch of coins flying to the moon at that time that had no, that had nothing, mm-hmm. that had no real, um, had no real use, no prospect for use, could not possibly live up to the claims that the uh, developers had mm-hmm. done. And I think there was like quite a bit of coverage there. So I think like, you know, you think about signal from the noise, like nobody knows whether tomorrow or the next year or next uh, week or whatever, it's going to go up or down. Certainly, I don't think that's like most journalists don't view that as their job. But like uh, sort of being able to help a reader distinguish between like, well, how something like Bitcoin is completely different from something like Ripple mm-hmm. is completely different from something like X is totally something that journalists are capable of doing in real time mm-hmm. and frequently do. So like, you know, sure, like just from a price standpoint, like there is going to be a lag and prices draw people's interest. It also draws investor interest. I mean, uh, it's not just, you know, it, it's, I'm sure like at the same time in late 2017, when the mainstream media started doing way more crypto stories, I'm sure uh, actual like people with money, there's probably like a one-to-one relationship between the price, the number of stories, and then investors like, mm-hmm. should I get to be getting into this? Should I be doing an allocation? So everything is kind of like, well, it's like marketing, right? You need 10 impressions before yeah. you make a purchase decision. So, and it goes back to that concept of how many cycles have you yeah, paid attention and ignored it, right? But uh, there's plenty for journalists to do to add value to like really like, what is this project? Yep. What is, what is the difference between X and Y? And so if something comes along and it's like, we're just like Bitcoin, but faster transactions and lower fees, journalists are completely capable of tackling something like that. And it's really important. Uh, and I think it's important for any investors or prospective investors or people who are just interested in the space for good reporting on like what all this stuff means. Because otherwise, someone logs into their Coinbase and like, well, Bitcoin's at you know, 10,000 and Bitcoin Cash is at whatever, 500. So it's cheaper and it's more fees mm-hmm. or lower fees. That's an area in which I think, you know, explaining what this is all about, journalists are totally capable of. What is your take on Libra and all these central Mm. bank digital currencies? Because it seems to me that this is going to be maybe the bigger area of coverage for the foreseeable future when when it comes to like a mainstream media narrative standpoint. Because 
a government the size of China or the U.S. Yeah. that's thinking about digitizing their currency is a bigger story yeah. than you know a hundred billion dollar asset that's that's not really governed and you can't speak to the development right. quite as clearly. I mean, I think so. Let's start with Libra. Um, mm -hmm. My best analogy that I've come up with to describe Lib Libra is essentially um, Android. Uh, which uh, the operating system that Google developed, which is like, how do you have this, uh, how can you create a operating system that anyone can use, any mm -hmm. device maker can use in phones, TVs, cars, whatever, that so an open source uh, operating system designed to be very multi-platform like that mm -hmm. hadn't really existed prior to Android. What I think Libra is attempting to do, and the reason I call it an analogy is like, or see the analogy is, you know, there's all these different payment vehicles around the world. So it's like, you know, here in the U.S., we might use Square or Venmo or PayPal or whatever. In uh, China, they may use Alipay or something like that. There's M-Pesa is a popular platform in parts of Africa and so forth. And they don't speak to each other. Like I can't, if you're on Alipay and I'm using Venmo, we're not going to be able to uh, transact. They don't speak to each other. There's no real prospect of them speaking to each other because they're different banking systems and different regulatory systems overall. Mm -hmm. And that creates an issue with like all kinds of transactions. So what I see is like sort of the goal with Libra is, well, how can we create a universal platform essentially to bypass the inherent restrictions mm -hmm. placed in payment systems with each country. And I, the problem is, and why I'm, I guess I'm like probably pretty skeptical of it in the end, is like these restrictions exist for regulatory reasons related to banking uh, laws in all these different countries. And the only way Libra would really work is if regulators all around the world suddenly decided that they were going to uh, relax their rules simply because a company called Facebook came along and wanted mm -hmm. to do payments on the blockchain on the blockchain or something that resembled a blockchain. I don't really see that happening. I don't see why. Essentially, it would be like regulatory arbitrage. Yep. Like here, we're creating something, and we're like, oh, we're going to call it crypto, or we're going to like talk about some new blockchain technology and give a spiel about uh, remittances and financial inclusion. And so, please, like, let us just do payments that you haven't really allowed anyone else to do in a cross-border way. I don't really see it working out. So in that analogy, China's digital currency would be iOS? Yeah, exactly. Something like that. And I mm -hmm. and the US is Windows or whatever. But uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. But no, I, you know, I think Bearish. like with these, uh, no, 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 I don't mean that like that. But I, do, I, I think with, so there's a couple of different questions with, with these central bank digital currency questions is, um, A, I get why well, they're talking about it. Mm -hmm. It's not clear to me if the people within central banks around the world who are talking about or promoting it have a clear idea in their own head why, mm -hmm. like what they're seeking to accomplish. I haven't really... Well, negative interest rates. No, but it's actually like it's... Ubiquitous surveillance. A, a cryptocurrency... Ubiquitous surveillance might be a plausible explanation for China's goal. Um, or just which they have already. its reserve currency reach as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. There, there's many yeah, geopolitical. But they can do that ex already political. with like you know banks exist and it's you know for the most part. The question is like like what I think of like okay a central bank digital currency. How does that differ from other money which is already like more or less digital? Mm -hmm. The only like, real answer the way it can be different is if 
uh, I can have a digital dollar that acts as cash as a bearer asset. And so, you know, if I like I could pay you via Venmo or Square right now, and that's digital, that's a digital dollar. Mm-hmm. The difference is that if I have $100 in my Venmo account, what I really just have is a $100 Venmo liability, and I expect mm-hmm. them to pay me. And if I want to make a payment to you or something like that, Venmo is going to know about it, and our, your bank will know about it. But if I had a bearer asset of uh, digital dollars, then I could make a payment to you in theory. Mm-hmm. And there's no third party that says no or you can't do this. You know, it's like people like on Venmo get like, you know, they get banned because they made a joke about yeah. buying drugs or maybe not a joke. Or like um, I heard a story, I think like someone like paid their friend for like they split Cuban food for lunch and the uh, the algorithm thought that they were making a payment to someone in Cuba and they got <laughs> uh, kicked off the platform. Like, you know, it's pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. And if I, if there were a digital dollar, then I could just pay you for Cuban food for lunch and, you know, there's yeah. no one who's going to flag it. And so I think like the only real difference between a digital dollar and a sort of online dollar is that question of whether it's a true bearer asset that person A can transfer to person B without person C knowing. But I don't really know if, Governments want that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not it's not obvious to me. Like, hopefully there would be some enlightened governments that say, you know what? Uh, monetary privacy is a, a value. We have it with uh, physical cash right now. The world is going in a digital direction. We should allow, at least on some level, people to preserve the right to at least small to medium-sized <laughs> transactions that they conduct privately without anyone knowing. Therefore, we need to create some sort of digital dollar. Um I don't think anyone's really saying that right now. Mm-hmm. And so other than that, it's not obvious to me what the point is. And you mentioned negative interest rates. I think that'd be worse be, for, from a rate perspective because right now, like if you let's say they really did do dramatically negative interest rates, which for what it's worth, I don't foresee in the U.S., but let's say they did it. So the easiest way to counteract that. So like pull out a bunch of cash, right? Mm-hmm. But then you have like the risk of storing cash and you put it under your mattress, but maybe there's a fire and it's gone. It'd be easier to pull cash out of the banking system and not have uh, that sort of like degradation mm-hmm. with the digital currency. Because then it's like, well, I'm not, it's no longer a liability of a bank. Can't pass it on. It becomes like cash. So I really, I'm interested in where all this conversation around central bank digital currencies go. I'm just not clear if the central bankers themselves who talk about it have a clear reason why. But I will say this, which is that one of the most dominant forces in the world, I think, in the business world and finance and economics and technology world, is to just sound interesting on a panel somewhere. <laughs> and seriously, so like if you want to like if you're like a guy mm-hmm. working at whatever the ECB or the Swiss National Bank toiling away at something, like coming up with some paper about a digital euro or a digital franc mm-hmm. is probably a pretty fast route to get some attention. Yep. And I genuinely, without any irony or humor or sarcasm, think that that's probably a pretty big motivating factor. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to sound interesting, and yep. that's a pretty good way to do it. It's an interesting theory. I've, I have two uh, related, but but you know maybe we'll, we'll transition focus, two more uh, threads that I want to pull on. Sure. Um, the first is... We've been more or less in a straight shot up for 12 years in the market. Yeah. We've not seen something like 2008 uh, or, or you know 2001 for an entire generation of media personalities. Yeah. Um, 
And and maybe we'll, we'll kind of touch on the coronavirus a little sure. bit because it, it maybe it, it's happening so much faster, um, and it ties back to the same question of how how do you foresee staying sober uh, and and as a voice of reason if things go haywire or realistically when yeah. things go haywire because you know that like part of the business cycle right. is always going to be there are going to be ebbs and flows you are going to see other moments like that yeah. um, it's just a matter of when not if and. How how do you toe the line between creating enough urgency for your audience yeah. without having like the Jim Cramer moment, right? Uh, <laughs> it's difficult. Or, or maybe yeah. you leave that to Jim. I don't know uh, because it's just a different brand. Uh, I'm I'm curious how you see that playing out. If if you know it happened this year because of the coronavirus, or it happened you know in five years, at some point there's going to be this moment where you have to report again on a 2008 like. Yeah scenario, but you're 12, 15 years, however many years forward in your career, it, it, it's going to be viewed, I think, by you and your current colleagues through a very different lens than, you know, your lens. Yeah. You know, wait. I mean, it's a tough question. I mean, I think that generally speaking, good editors, uh, good journalists, like hopefully they're people of good judgment generally and mm-hmm. have an intuitive sense of like, you know, how to talk about something extremely serious without being overly alarmist or mm-hmm. uh, theatrical uh, theatrical in it. You know, I think you mentioned a lot of people weren't around in 2008, 2009, 2010. But it's not like the last 10 years has been some walk in the park. And I think mm-hmm. people, um, people forget this. Like, it's kind of been a straight shot up. But how many times were there periods where like, oh, this is it? So it's like, you know, yeah. even... 2011, 2012. The like, U.S. tech downgrade. And uh, the, the the entire euro area crisis. Yep. I mean, the idea that Greece was going to default. People were talking about Ireland defaulting. Italy, Spain. They were mm-hmm. like, these were, it was like a really serious thing. Uh, it did not seem like an obviously tractable problem at the time. I don't think yep. anyone really knew. And so that was, people thought that was going to be a big deal. Um, I, uh, when was it? Late 2015. There was a pretty serious concern about um, possible recession. Uh, 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 China had devalued its currency overnight, suddenly out of nowhere by 2%. We got this very intense market sell-off. That was pretty notable and rocky. And some people think that the U.S. uh, should have technically been declared into a light recession in early Mm -hmm. 2016 due to the downturn in oil prices leading to hitting other manufacturing. So, you know, it has been 10 years of a bull market, uh, but it hasn't been, it's not like, you know, it's been all flowers and roses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, since then. And if anything, there is the flip side, which is not that um, people are, you know, people say like, oh, no one remembers the the crisis or people have like sort of like, uh, people are just used to everything going up. I would make the argument that scars and memories of the crisis run extremely deep. And the mm-hmm. impulse to declare that the next 2008 is here is something that a lot of people may, may be over-inclined to do. There are a lot of people that remember uh, both uh, to the tech bubble and 2008. And mm-hmm. so they're always looking for the next one, maybe maybe too much even. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we've forgotten or a lot of people have forgotten not that there aren't crises, but that there are recessions that aren't crises. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, <laughs> even in the framing of your question, it's like, yeah, at some point there will be another 2008, but maybe 
we'll have another 1991, which is a, okay, we had a recession and it lasted a while and then we came back, but there was no crisis and there was no like fear of a banking collapse and stuff like that. If anything, maybe that's what people have forgotten, that you can have downturns without, that, it, being without, it, being, without yeah. it being apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we'll do a, a lightning round for this one. I'll try, okay. I'll try to get you into a little bit of trouble. So uh, one way that I've personally learned in crypto yeah. is via my pseudonym, the two-bit idiot. It was, yeah. a, it was an accident of history, oh, yeah. uh, reliance on Cunningham's law, right? The fastest way to learn something isn't to ask a question, it's to be wrong on the internet. Right. Do you troll crypto people? With some of your tweets, yeah, probably. I mean, I guess it, like if I'm if I'm being honest, probably. I mean, you know, I kind of I try to do it, uh, you know, Socratically, in the sense that like I don't, uh, you know. So yesterday, I don't know when data so come out, but like yesterday, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, like Bitcoin had a big drop, mm-hmm. and. Someone DM me and they're like, "Oh, tweet out the uh, Bitcoin plunge." And I was like, "No, I'm not like just trying to like be obnoxious yeah. for the sake of being obnoxious. Like, I'm not like I don't want to just there's you know I don't need to like be the person that points out everyone notices it. But uh, you know, I hope to you you know with being online and fighting people a little bit, you know, always hopefully in a good natured way, like arrive at some sort of like further. Uh, Mm-hmm. You know, view and like um, I like to stress test people's views, and so I hopefully like if people think I'm trolling them, I l- try to look more positively. It's like, all right, you believe this thing, but it's really like not working out. It's like, oh, it's a really good year for Bitcoin so far. Everyone's getting excited about the halving mm-hmm. uh, in May, but it's like, okay, so then why are people? Why is Ethereum up e- even more and Litecoin's mm-hmm. up even more and all these other, uh, you know. Pointless coins are up even more than that. And I don't say that to be trolling. I'm saying, well, let's really like stress test your view. Like if you think that there is like this um, thing going on that is uh, contributing to a price move, let's try and tease it apart. And how does it stand up in the face of like this evidence or this evidence? And plus, you know, they all troll me. So I got to go back at it. What's your early take on the coronavirus? Is this going to be the story of the year? Are we going to fizzle out? I wish I knew. I mean, um, it's going to be a huge story because even if uh, I think it, by this point and it, even if, um, you know, like it, it appears at the time that we're talking that we'll get some sort of further something more in the United States than the cases that we've had. It seems virtually inevitable. I mean, at this point, basically, the CDC has told us as such, even if it doesn't cause like an extreme disruption to day to day life. Um, the already the effects that we've seen on supply chains around the world is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Between the trade war last year and this, it's extremely hard for me to envision that the mode of like doing business internationally with China is just going to like okay, let's turn the factories back on and mm-hmm. uh, go back to the old way. It's been such an extreme level of stress and disruption. So outside of I mean, who else? Who knows what's going to happen? You yeah, know, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, there's the I'm, election, not, but it's, it's, I'm not asking. I don't for, think that, like, yeah. we are going – at this point, it does not appear that the coronavirus is going to be, A, short-lived, or B, something that we just completely go back to normal from. Um, it, hopefully, it's relatively short-lived from a public health crisis mm-hmm. standpoint in the U.S., especially uh, if cases uh, gather steam. That could be the kind of thing where, like, okay, maybe in – there's a few week period 
hopefully not longer mm -hmm. than that where it's extreme and then it dies down. But from a sort of like fundamental like economic standpoint, um, it's hard to imagine everything just going completely back to normal. Uh, last question on this yeah. on, on this topic anyway. Um, how do you cover differences between what Trump says and what his lieutenants say? Yeah. Right. So, so you know, this has been a constant theme, I think, throughout his presidency. Right. Yeah. The contradictions and the the constant you know media attention and, and cycles that he's been masterful at, at yeah. generating um, noise or or, right. or coverage around, but with a, a situation that's more serious and that does look like it could have a, a pretty meaningful economic impact, regardless of how it plays yeah. out. Um, how do you make editorial decisions around Trump saying the market's looking really good right now right. versus his CDC head coming out and saying, you know, we, the, our coverage uh, over the last two days um, is just really straightforward. It's mm -hmm. like, uh, we, there was a really good piece. It said something like, you know, Trump says X, the CDC says Y, and the market has sided with the CDC on uh, this question. <laughs> and you can just, you know, one of the sort it's of, a, it's opinionated you don't with data. I don't even, you know, yeah. you, don't, like, you don't even have to force it. Yeah. And that's, I think, the key. And I think where media gets yeah. in trouble. You don't have to go full Hannity or Rachel Maddow. Yeah, you, you don't have to like, you don't have to like, look at the market. Try that, you know, there's also like, like we have, we do reporting at Bloomberg that's not just market centric. But I think like, the facts are interesting enough. Yeah. And the facts is kind of, and hopefully uh, good reporters uncover new facts. And, you know, we've done that. We have interesting stories about what's going on inside the White House and tensions there about, well, um, you know, there's some in the White House that really want to sound the alarm more about the virus. Others who think that sounding the alarm would be dangerous and damaging to uh, the economy or perhaps uh, Trump's perceived reelection odds. Mm -hmm. Just report it out. And yep. I think that's like the sort of lesson from the media and all this. And, um, you know, I don't think I don't think the world needs much more than sort of good facts on it. And of course, people are always going to assume that you're making it up or fake news, but can't do much about that. Bitcoin 2020. The facts yeah. are interesting enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. The facts, that's that's my view. That's like, that's, that's like the lesson of the last 10 years. Like you yep. don't have to try to, to force interesting stories these days because there's a bunch out there the that, world is weird the world is it's getting weirder <laughs> all the time and you know i was like um you always think you're at peak weird right yeah in the moment and then like two years later it's like oh man that was so tame 2020, 2020 <laughs> it's like that's gonna happen right we'll look back at 2020 yeah. one day and say i remember the good old days when it was just the coronavirus and the election and, and god stuff i hope like not that. No, I hope I hope I hope this uh, the virus turns out to be not a recurring yeah. Yeah. feature that affects life forever. But the, there's all kinds of things, mm -hmm. you know, like we've had other even on the virus like this is turning out to be one of the most extreme things. But the two stories in the last 10 years that I think are most similar from a sort of uncertainty standpoint, mm -hmm. um, the Gulf, the oil spill mm -hmm. um, in 2011. No, yeah. I think it was 2010 Deepwater, mm -hmm. Deepwater Horizon. And the reason is similar is because you just didn't know, right, where it was going to go. Like, yeah. Were they ever going to be able to plug it? That was unclear. And you could imagine, like, Deepwater Horizon happening now in 2020, the number of, like, insane <laughs> threads you would be reading. It's like, well, I'm a retired petroleum engineer, and here's my thread about there's no way this can ever be capped. <laughs> and then it gets, like, 40,000, you know, it'd get, like, yeah. 50,000. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like, see... So 
It didn't happen, but it could have, or there were people who thought that. So maybe and then the they, other one I just uh, maybe these are just as weird, but they're more amplified. Yeah, it could be. I mean, social media has that effect. And then the other one is um, the uh, nuclear crisis at Fuku the Fukushima Daiichi mm -hmm. nuclear mm -hmm. plant. It was not clear that they were going to be able to contain that. And I remember suddenly, like people, were like oh, like if like Geiger counters around Tokyo, like is there any radiation? They did eventually like find a way to battle it. But again, like imagine what we'd be hearing today on Twitter about that story mm -hmm. and the prognostications about this uh, uncontrollable nuclear meltdown that was inevitably going to spread uh, dangerous radioactive uh, material to every city in Asia. And what that would do, like, you know, it, it's uh, the coronavirus is very real, obviously, and it's already <laughs> having massive disruptive effect. But at the same time, like you can think of these other examples of these sort of unexpected exogenous events that no government or central banker can control because they're just things out of the world out of their control and they just fight their best to uh stop them but tr true uh like the true meaning of uncertainty mm -hmm. well joe you're great at covering the uncertainty thank and you being sober about it so uh i'll look forward to seeing you again on bloomberg soon or on twitter yeah uh, at the stalwart uh, do you still wake up every day and with the famous? Yeah, because you know, especially now, like I started always tweeting what I miss in the morning during the Euro crisis because so much was happening while I was sleeping. Yeah. So now we're back to that uh, with the coronavirus. So yeah. much, so many developments uh, happen while I'm sleeping. So it actually makes sense again. Yeah, I don't wake up at four thirty, but I started aping that. Uh, what should I write about today? Nice. Was, yeah. yeah, it's great. And it's great. I get, you and get so many responses. Like, gets interesting interactions that I don't expect. It's great. Uh, Joe, thanks again for coming in. And thank you for tuning in to the most recent episode of Unqualified Opinions with Joe Weisenthal from Bloomberg. Catch him on Twitter and catch us every Tuesday and Thursday. Subscribe, tell your friends and colleagues, and uh, we'll see you next time. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me, otherwise, I'll see you next week.